0: Hello,
1: and welcome to Amplify Archaeology podcast. Hello, you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. I'm here on a sunny day, stood right next to one of Ireland's most important archaeological monuments, Rathcrohan, at the heart of County Roscommon. And I'm here with Dr Daniel Curley, who's the manager of the Visitor Centre at Rathcrohan, And we're going to talk a little bit about Rathcrowden itself, the kind of the archeological landscape, but also the really important farming project that's underway here. And we're gonna meet one of the farmers and we're gonna meet uh, Petra, who's uh, the manager of that particular scheme as well. But to begin, Daniel, firstly, you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about Rathcrowden for people who are unfamiliar with it? What's the sort of the broad story, if you like, what's the nature of the archeology? span Why is it such an important place?
2: So, Rathcrohan is, it's a landscape of archaeology. Uh, it's broadly about six and a half square kilometres in area. And it's all located above the 120 metre contour line over sea level. So, it's this plateau, basically. Mm-hmm. And on the summit of the plateau, we've got this stretch of 240 identified archaeological sites. 60 of them are national monuments. And basically, that collection can spell the settlement history of Ireland mm-hmm. from the early Neolithic period up until the later medieval period with what seems to be a very demonstrable high point in the late Iron Age, early medieval period. And this fits in along the, the wider schema of what we talk about as the, the great, you know, ceremonial capitals or very, very vitally important um, focal landscapes mm-hmm. within Ireland. The likes of the Hill of Tara, the likes of Navan Fort, and mm-hmm. um, the Hill of Oisnach, Doonalona and the Rock of Cashel and that six collection is part of a serial nomination for UNESCO World Heritage status uh, under the banner title of the Royal Sites of Ireland. Now we know there are other similar landscapes within the mm-hmm. island as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, Rathcrohan I always describe it nearly like a ceremonial and symbolic capital for the territory of Connacht.
1: Yes, uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary place just even when you're driving around here, you know, the amount of times I nearly drove off the road, looking at monuments that you're flying past—it's it, just yeah. an incredible density of very high-status monuments. It, it, it's fantastic. And could you tell us a little bit about the visitor centre in Tulsa? Uh, can you, what, when did that? What's the origins of that, and what can a visitor experience there today? So,
2: the visitor centre came about effectively as a result of the surveys, the archaeological surveys that were conducted. At Rathcrohan in the early 1990s so the mm-hmm. university in Galway uh, spearheaded by Professor John Waddell, mm-hmm. Joe Fennick, and Kevin Barton they explored this landscape, um, a number of sites within the landscape through these non-invasive geophysical methods and that spoke to the local community from the point of view of m- maybe the fact that the outside world are looking at our heritage, mm-hmm. that maybe it's of a higher standard or of greater importance than we would have given it credit for. Mm -hmm. So in and around 1996 um, the local community established a a board of directors uh, that sought to action a a locally-derived visitor centre to appeal to that and to give the visitor interpretation based on that. So in 1999 then the visitor centre was set up and it's been operating for the last 21-22 years now um, in terms of bringing the visitor out to Rath giving them a sense of what Particularly Iron Age Ireland is, and what Iron Age Rathcrohan tells us, and it's 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 trying to weave a story, a narrative that's based around uh, both the standing archaeological remains, which are enormous, numerous, and tell a very complex myriad of stories, but also then also the the, the mythological or the saga narratives that uh, revolve around and spiral around this place, uh, particularly the Ulster Cycle of tales.
1: Yeah, and, and can we talk about that a little? You know, because I mean, I suppose that's such a big part of the story of Rathcrohan and in some ways, that's where it's almost most famous for i guess in some yeah. you know outside of archaeological of circles um so how what uh, what's the kind of nature of those stories and kind of what so I, su-
2: like? I suppose uh from my own perspective when i started here um, i'll very firmly put my hand up and say i'm i, I was a castle scholar so <laughs> looking at prehistoric archaeology was in its, in its own right uh, somewhat of a departure for me but then also dealing with all of this myth and folklore that i would have only really encountered when i was in primary school and mm-hmm. early years of secondary school um, to be honest, I, I wouldn't have valued them in the same sense as I, I do now. Um, mm-hmm. But the reality is that this collection of stories, um, th- the largest part of it is, is found in the Ulster cycle of tales. So that, that mythological cycle that's attached to Ireland um, and principally a whole series of different cattle raiding stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these, these tauna, or the, they basically, I suppose they give a very exaggerated magnified version of perhaps what part of the reality was out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, so the principal tale within the Ulster cycle is the, is the Thornbow Cullinia or the Cattle Raid of Cooley which is it's Ireland's national epic. This is our mm-hmm. equivalent of the Iliad mm-hmm. or, or Beowulf and it's the oldest vernacular epic written in Europe. Um, and what we have here then we have this uh, very protracted story surrounding huge armies. Um, we talk about uh, the great warrior Queen Maeve, her husband Mac Mata and this great raid into Ulster in order to collect this prized brown bull, this monstrous creature. Um, which only has one equivalent on the island, which is that of Alil's uh, white bull, the Finbennacht, the Connacht bull. Mm-hmm. So this whole narrative is interwoven in towards the archaeology. And some, look, in some cases, it's vastly divergent towards <laughs> what the archaeology is telling us. But it's, it's that intoxicating narrative that allows us to, I suppose, bring the visitor in and then we're trying to pick apart the story and uh, reconstruct it in a format that actually speaks towards the archaeology. So it's this combination, this balance and act that has to take place. Absolutely. And uh, in many respects, it, it actually kind of revolutionises what a visitor understands Wrathcrawchen to be once they've come out on tour with us. Uh, yeah. Because we're, we're trying to, I suppose, you know, disentangle the story and uh, put it in its right context, uh, you know, maybe, maybe even as part of a very veiled version of origin myths, origin stories around the pre-Christian Irish.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's such an interesting balance. I often think of it as the facts, the archaeology is kind of like the skeleton, and the story is like the flesh mm-hmm. on it. Yep. But without that skeleton, it's, you know, just a messy heap <laughs> of yes. flesh. Yeah, but, you know, you kind of, for it to walk, you need the skeleton to do it really? as well. And it, it's finding that balance between them. And there's so many sites around here we could talk about in that vein, like Owen oh, Agat, the, Gats, the mm-hmm. cave, which even has in. Ogham script you know a reference to Maeve doesn't it so it's a a really really interesting place and do you know one of the things I think the visitor center uh, has has become very known for in archaeological circles for sure is celeb uh, you know celebrating community archaeology and you've had a a, an ongoing series of conferences focused on that what could you tell us a little bit about those conferences those meetings what was the kind of the genesis of that if you like
2: of course well i suppose um in, in a in a strange way the fact that the visitor center was established as a community concern mm. um spoke very very deliberately to this idea that perhaps we, we should be reflecting that information back and, and trying to encourage other communities to do something similar or the same in whatever nice. form or agenda that they, they can bring it to um, so in reality uh, in 2014 we had the first um, community uh, iteration of the archaeology conference at Rathcron and that's yeah. been running now uh, we'll be going into our seventh year with the COVID break in between mm-hmm. um, this year 20, uh, November 2022 so that'll it just allows a showcase for communities uh, small organizations that could even be tidy towns uh, committees or individuals that have explored their own heritage or archaeology in their own context just being gathered into a location where they can I suppose test themselves in a in a collegial environment as well. Yeah. It's not as it's not as if it's this very overarching academic um, conference yeah. that leads to perhaps you know debate of a very difficult kind. It's basically a first stepping stone for people in yeah. some cases, and it allows us to to kind of think and draw ideas away from other projects yeah. and maybe impart them in our own areas. So yeah. look, we we've had people coming from across Ireland, across England, and, and indeed Europe um, at different of our conferences in order to try and speak to that narrative of, of community archaeology and various different ways we can achieve that in our own local context
1: no i, I think it's incredibly valuable you know we we lucky to work with the heritage council uh, at about heritage on the adopt a monument scheme mm-hmm. and i know a, a number of our groups have, have taken part and yeah. there and it's a great opportunity for you. as you say quite often when it comes to which community archaeology or public archaeology projects normally the people presenting the results and and the methods and so on are kind of archaeologists mm-hmm. coming along and doing that, professionals if you like, and giving the community opportunities to talk about their experiences and what they value about it and, and their information that they've gained from it. You know, I think is a really rewarding mm-hmm. one. It gives. Um, a really good platform for that and most importantly sharing experiences and stories as well what worked what didn't work what you know because it always kind of creates ideas for other people to go well we could try that as you say of course in our own area as well i yeah. think it's extremely valuable for that and you know i suppose being at that kind of cutting edge if you like you know research and, and especially with a landscape like rathcroton is ongoing all the time and excavations are kind of ongoing all the time um As uh, research is an ongoing process, all these new discoveries are coming to light, you know, how do you keep up with that in a visitor centre kind of setting? I
2: I suppose in many respects, we're a product of our own uh, obsession, really. Uh, So all all of our staff, all our tour guiding staff are qualified archaeologists in some fashion or form. Mm. So they have this, it's not a case that our narrative stands still. It's a case Mm -hmm. that every time a discovery that is, you know, within our own local area or has uh, a part to add to how we understand Rathcrochan that bit better or the wider Midruss common area yeah. it, 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 it requires our attention and we, we speak to that and we, we look at that so I mean examples like um, the recent discovery of the the Gurtna figure, figure yeah. this huge oak figure that was uncovered in the wetlands just to the northwest northeast of Tulsk um, that has a a whole I suppose entangled nature to what Rathcrochan is because of its similar dating because yes. of where it's located on the boundaries of the Rathcrochan landscape. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's important for us as we try and just add that extra jigsaw piece to the, the wider story that uh, we include that, we, we conceive of it and we kind of try and tease it apart with those that excavated it and those that are studying it directly. But even ourselves, we would be conducting our own research out here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, even most recently, um, just after uh, the 2021 lockdown, we would have uh, taken a sample of calcite from the latter part of the Oanagoth, uh, man-made section of the Oanagoth cave. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's gone to um, the Department of Geology in UCD uh, for Frank McDermott, Professor Frank McDermott, in order to take that sample and apply a uranium-thorium dating system to it okay. uh, in the hope that we can derive a date based on the, the calcite uh, as a means of m- suggesting a construction date uh, for the actual entrance passage it- itself. So that actual story, that approach to research was all borne out by the fact that we had a, an Inqua uh, an international quaternary association field trip here in mm-hmm. 2018 which allowed the suggestion from one of the international delegates maybe perhaps you can approach that so we're always looking out for opportunities in order to try and bring that story yeah. that extra couple of percent further
1: that's really interesting daniel that's really interesting and do you know um the time we're at now we're in 2022 we're kind of at the end of the year we're at the end of september in a way and it's been a very challenging few years lately. You know, I think COVID has posed a a seismic challenge to all kinds of visitor attractions uh, of any scale. And nowadays we're kind of going through a, a cost of living crisis. You know, there's the energy prices are going through the roof and such. With the visitor centre, how are you coping with that in terms of kind of just on a practical basis? Like, uh, is, is there a kind of a lot of supports coming in for you or is it something that you're kind of having to find a tricky balance with?
2: So I suppose in effect, really, the, the visitor centre is supported to a large degree on the revenues of visitors coming in through the doors. Mm-hmm. So even from the point of view of simple things like um, car hire prices going up, Uh, Mm -hmm. for overseas visitors over the course of the summer that meant um, in purely mercenary terms that the spend would have been lower in the gift shop and in Mm -hmm. in cafe contexts and and all the various different supporting pillars that we have within the visitor center to generate income so we have had to be frugal in how we approach things certain projects have been placed on the back burner in a sense Um, but it also has led us to maybe try innovations particularly during the covid lockdowns themselves Mm -hmm. of ensuring that the rothcrochan message um, was still uh, relevant, was, was current and we were still passing that message out there. So that came in various forms from uh, you know a redesigned website which is very user friendly and a lot of interaction that a visitor um, the length and breadth of the world can explore parts of Rathcormack actually live in their, their living room. Um, through to you know virtual tours of different aspects of the landscape through to our online bookshop which we tried to um, provide as a focus to continue with people's interest and research um, Mm -hmm. again from their own living rooms and again that provided a small uh, injection of income that supported the staff and it meant that we didn't lose any staff over the course of COVID and in fact going out to far into COVID we actually gained a couple of uh, casual staff over the course of the summer as well so look we're, we're just trying to ensure that there's an economic benefit um, a sustainable and economic benefit based on the archaeological and mythological landscape that's in our midst. Um, and if we can do that, then we've achieved our aims and it, it's helping in the preservation of the landscape as well.
1: And look into the future of Rathcrochan, the visitor center, the broader landscape of archeology span here. What do you think the future holds? What would you like to see in five years, say, or even 10 years?
2: So the, the, there's a greater vision and ambition in a, on our part um, to try and I suppose maximise uh, the, the value that Rathcrawan has for the visitor be it someone that's just coming on a five minute visit through to someone that wants to uh, embed themselves in the landscape for a couple of days mm. so one of the ways in which we're approaching that we're, we're currently at a, an application stage for developing a walking trail through the landscape mm. which would be 13 kilometers in length and would allow the visitor to explore parts of the landscape that previously haven't been available so that's even even down to the the simple infrastructure um, in the form of styles and wayfinding measures, we've attempted to be innovative from the point of view of not breaking ground. So, mm. our style design is actually uh, cutting edge from the point of view of archaeology and in areas of zones of notification and so on. So, if we were to develop and if we were successful in that grant application to, to have our walking trail developed that would completely revolutionise how we would bring Rathcrohan to the visitor. And again, that speaks to the whole outdoor recreation. It speaks to healthy living um, aspects. And that means that someone that may have an in-depth academic knowledge of Rathcrohan through to someone that just wants to go for a short walk through this amazing cultural landscape, both can be achieved in a very comfortable way through grassland and accommodating the farmers in the process as well. So that's one of the projects that I would love to see come to pass and and we're ardently striding in order to try and achieve that. Other aspects of the the, 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 the Rathcrochan project would include the farm in Rathcrohan EIP, which we're hoping to get refunded uh, mm-hmm. beyond its current life cycle of 2023. Mm-hmm. And we think that the inherent benefits that's been placed on preserving earth and archeology span in particular um, in Ireland, um, and the, the, the model of good practice that we're um, developing here could reflect I- enormously, both in Ireland and, and further afield, um, if those attributes and those actions are being um, accommodated in other farm farm holdings across Europe because it is a European project at the end of the day and we know that the eyes of Europe are on us from the point of view of cultural heritage and its preservation.
1: Looking at this kind of mythological importance and and so on and how can I suppose how can visitors enjoy that today beyond the pages of you know the the books uh, and the fantastic graphic novel that's been made and, and, and so on how can people come in and enjoy some of those stories in the around Rathcroghan today?
2: Well, I, I think that it really is a case that beyond the pages of, of these these mythological stories, uh, it really deserves a telling out on the land where it's been conceived. Mm. And that's where I think the inherent value is for the visitor to Rathcroghan because you're looking out over a landscape that's served as inspiration for all the various attributes that are occurring, be the monsters, creatures and demons and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we have physical you know remnants of the mythological stories out on the land here from Rathcrohan mound which was perceived to be Maeve's residence in mm-hmm. the town through to our cave at Uvneghat or Ounegat mm-hmm. um, regarded as she Crocan so the 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 fairy mound of, or the otherworldly mound of Crocan which is heavily synonymous with both the goddess of war the Morrigan mm-hmm. and associated with this ancient festival of samhain Mm. uh, which we have handed down to us in modern terms by the global festival of halloween so as we disentangle again uh the the story surrounding samhain and all those creatures and manifestations that emerge out of this cave we're actually peering back into the the ancestral mindset from the point of view of how the, the seasons changed how grass stopped growing, how leaves fell off the trees, how we came into a, a dormant period of the year mm. um, through looking at those mythological stories. So as part of, you know, all of what we say, we can stand with great resonance and honesty to say that the cave at Onagat is as, as likely a candidate to be an origin place for Halloween as any other location within the Irish or the global landscape. Mm. So. It has this huge resonance that, that, look, that speaks to a broad community of people. A mm. huge audience comes to visit us course over the course of the year, but also fo- focusing on, on points of the year, such as at Halloween or Samhain. And um, we want to give the accurate and we want to give all of this myriad of information in, in a package that's, that's digestible, but also actually makes sense. Yes. Um, and actually is rooted in what our ancestors understood
1: yeah it's a coherent story exactly yeah no that's that's fantastic and you know all i can do really is advise anyone that has any interest in archaeology which i'm assuming a lot of the listeners do have at this stage um is to spend a bit of time around the rathcohan landscape and 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 certainly there's some great events coming up around kind of halloween uh but to also come kind of any time of the year really it's one of those places it's got real atmosphere there's a huge variety of monuments Mm -hmm. as well um, and there's some great tours available from the visitor centre. So, Daniel, thanks a million. I, I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank Woo-hoo. you. Thank you. So I'm here with Dr. Petra Appelgren and um, Petra, you're the, the manager of the Farming Rathcrodan project. Could you tell us a little bit about it? How did it start? What are its kind of key aims? How does it work?
3: Um, so I suppose the uh, farming project started um, due to a number of issues we had in Recrean, mm-hmm. um that were picked up by local do you know, local farmers and uh, people working in the area. So there was yeah. a group of people that kind of came together and said, look, we need to do something about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I suppose
1: that... Was that the kind, sorry, was that the kind of conflict between they were finding it difficult to get planning permission, they were finding it difficult to manage the land in the way that they wanted up against the kind of the importance of the archaeology. Is that what the core
3: Yeah, so I issue suppose was? as a farmer, having archaeology on your land is it's very it's like it's a difficult thing and it's a confusing thing at times and it's very, yeah. very restrictive. Uh-huh. Like obviously there's a lot of things you can't do yeah, yeah. when you have archaeology and it's not necessarily outlined to you in a way that is kind of readily accessible. Yes. Okay. So um there would have been a lot of fear in Rakran at the time. Okay. There would have been, do you know, farmers are you know they're afraid of doing things on their farm yeah. just um just in case they get penalized for it Do you know yeah, yeah of course. um so um i suppose historically there's been a very kind of top-down approach yeah. that there are people coming in telling you what you can and can't do sometimes mm-hmm. penalizing you for things you didn't even know you can you can't do Yeah. obviously plan- planning permission is a major problem you know, problem, there's just a blanket restriction on planning. So there's no way of building houses, you know, farm yeah. succession. is a, it's a huge project, yeah. it's a problem. Yeah. So um, so I suppose there was a, a good bit of negativity growing in the area. Yeah, OK. Uh, to begin with. So there was a group of, you know, a group of local people. Uh, we have some local farmers, you know, uh, the local advisor, Daniel from the Vista center, kind of came together and said, look, lads, we need to do something about this. Uh-huh. Um, So they kind of got the project started, they got, um, you know, the proposals in, they actually got it funded. Uh Um, So um, I suppose what the project is, it's an EIP project. So it's a local-led result-based project, which means that it's based in Rakhrahan, it's developed in Rakhrahan for (laughs) Rakhrahan. so there's not someone do you know it's a new take on an agreement agri- environmental scheme really mm. that there's not someone in dublin do you know telling you what they think you should do yeah it's developed by farmers for this area in order to do you know promote sustainable farming in the area do you know make sure that do you know farmers can farm here long term in a yes. way that kind of protects the archaeology yeah. and it also protects them
1: yes and that's so, fantastic because, quite, you know, I suppose in in recent years we've seen projects which are focused on things like biodiversity yeah. and habitat on farms, and it's really interesting to see one which is very much focused on the archaeology side of the heritage yeah. as well. And in in terms of kind of, um, you know, the appetite from farmers, as as you said, like you know, they they were very aware of all the problems and they were raising the issues. Was there a good appetite to get involved from? the local kind of community
3: no there actually was and I think we were a little bit surprised and blown away of over just how much interest it was I think yeah. we had twice as many applications as we could take in uh-huh. so we ended up having to nearly turn people or, people away uh-huh. so um I suppose we had 30 project places and they were all filled immediately oh wow okay. um but then um in a way to I suppose keep people involved in it and for the education purposes anyone who kind of falls in their current catchment area. <laughs> Um, but couldn't make it into those thirty places. Um, are kind of involved on a training basis, sort of a training discussion group type of basis.
1: Okay. So very good. Yeah. And, and what are the benefits for the farmers to be involved in the project?
3: Well, there's there's a couple there's a couple of benefits. I suppose we are supporting them. I suppose from a financial basis as well. Okay. So how that works is that it's a result based project. So we have a scorecard. So we score them at the end of the year, so the farmers that have a higher quality score mm-hmm. gets more money at the end of the year, That's so fantastic. it's a way of kind of promoting good practices, yeah without penalizing yeah so um so the, yeah, so we would have had farmers that have done an amazing job over the years, and you know and our their archaeology is in perfect condition, and they would have gone on a very high score yeah. And then there would have been farmers that struggled a bit more kind of didn't have the best practices in place and they would have gone in on the lower score but then you know they would have you know performed measures and gotten financial support to bring their quality up yes so they can get uh, you know more payment at the end of the day fantastic and yeah so
1: it's incentivizing the good
3: it is it is yeah. in a very nice kind of positive way rather yeah. than taking away if you're doing it wrong but i suppose. Like, one of the things I think that's been more va- most valuable coming out of the project is having someone on the ground to kind of talk to the farmers. We have a yeah. field monument advisor uh-huh. in the program. yes, And it's been really, really useful to have someone from an archaeology background that yeah. can come out and meet the farmers where they are
1: uh-huh.
3: and explain. You know, obviously explain this is where your archaeology is, but also explain why they can't do certain things in certain places. Mm-hmm but also being open to a discussion um, about, you know, ways to get around it. Yes, yeah. So, like, in the past, it would have been very much a blanket no. Yeah, yeah. But now, you know, we can go in and say, well, no, but if you move it 10 metres that way, or maybe you can, you know, plant those trees in that corner of the farm where it's a little bit less sensitive. And, you know, kind of getting, you know, getting the farming done, but in a way that kind of, you know, takes it away from the archaeology and, you know, so. That's,
1: that's really good that's really positive positive. and yeah. do you know I, I suppose looking at the kind of the main threats if you like that can be posed and especially you know with this increasing intensification of agriculture yeah. what are those key threats is it um the movement of animals is it that you know the the different types of land use that has been done in the past or how, how do you see the kind of the main concerns that you're hoping to address
3: Yeah, so I suppose we're coming out of a period of time where agriculture has been very much promoting, you know, production over everything. Yeah. You know, more animals, heavier animals, more efficient machinery. Yeah. Do you know, and it's been you know, and it's hard. I suppose as a farmer, particularly in the west of the country, it's incredibly hard to make a profit out of farming. Yeah, yeah. as it is, yeah. and then you know, if you if you're pushed more and more towards that heavier and heavier, you know, cattle and machinery, it is going to have an you know a knock-on effect on archaeology. There's no kind of for sure. Yeah, yeah, and you're pressured like you need to use every inch of your farm, and sure. there's there's an awful there's an awful pressure. Do you know? Yeah. So um, I suppose. At the end of it, like it's no, it's no real surprise that's gone that way, and it's hard for the individual farmer as well. For sure, because you get so much conflicting messages, (laughs) and I think there's a big divide between agricultural messages and archaeological messages. (laughs) Do you know? And you get that kind of. It's very difficult to know what's the right thing to do. Yeah. And on one hand, you're pushed to to produce more on the farming side but then on the archaeology side you'll be like no you need to back off yeah, yeah, you know yeah. just don't put yeah just yeah. don't put any cattle in this field and you know it's, it's yeah. a very difficult thing to kind of put together
1: yeah that's and, uh, it. It, it and this is a great way the project is a great way of bridging some of that difference and kind of working alongside in such a way that it, it's kind of rewarding the behavior that they're not missing out by having you know, important monuments on on the land. And exactly, for the yeah. future of the project, what would you like to see happen, Petra?
3: Well, I think, obviously we have we have a pretty good kind of coverage between the, the project farmers that are actively taking measures and the training farmers. I think we have roughly 70% of the Rokhrahan area covered.
1: That's fantastic. Yeah,
3: yeah. so it's a, it's a really, really good way to reach out. But like, obviously we would love to have, you know, 100% coverage and 100% of the farmers actively protecting their monuments but sure. uh like the, the lovely thing with these projects i suppose is that they're applicable anywhere mm, <laughs> do you mm. know like obviously we have earthworks here but they could be applicable on other farms do you know with other mm. types of archaeology yeah. they're obviously applicable as we've seen with the borough program and all that on farms without mm. archaeology yes so it's just a really nice do you know adaptable way
0: yes
3: do you know to look at to look at farmers and do you know their their measures so um Obviously, obviously, we would like to expand it, you know, going forward. And, yeah, uh...
1: I'd, I'd love <laughs> to see it expand as well. as so many parts of the country, as you say, that you, you could easily see it transplanted and, and working really well. I think it's it, it's forming that necessary bridge, as we said earlier, between what's good for the heritage in the land and what's good for the custodians of that land. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a really important project, so thanks very much. Well, thank you. I'm here with Jared Healy, who is a farmer at Rathcarn, and he's taking part in the scheme. And Jared, could you tell us a little bit about your own background? You know, has is, is this area has the farm been kind of in the family for a long time, or are you fairly new to the Rathcarn landscape?
0: No, there's five generations of of the family that we know of. Farming here. Wow. Um, we've kind of gone from we were dairying, I suppose, suckler sheep, and now we're just we finish cattle
1: uh, for the factory. That's what we do now okay i see and that's the thing i mean i suppose cattle have been a big part of the story of this landscape you know even with the tarn and um you know the cattle raider coolie all of that kind of stuff um is that are cattle still predominantly the main type of farming that you'd find around this part of the country
0: yeah well it's probably sheep and cattle um uh, i suppose we've good land here it's always kind of associated with good land and yeah. good cattle I think we have one dairy farmer in the area um but I suppose with the way things has gone there's very few full-time farmers yeah okay. most of us is part-time farmer part-time farmer myself so okay
1: most people have a job besides the farm do you know yeah yeah um, and you know being five generations of the family and there's such rich archaeology around here you can barely turn a corner without an important site being there how did you kind of grow up with those kind of monuments were they part of kind of when you were a kid did you tell stories about them or play with them that kind of thing well I
0: suppose like in the local national school which now unfortunately closed like but it was kind of drilled into as the town and obviously and the, the caves and you know everything and and uh, yeah. even going back even like my grandfather's time you know you always respected the monuments and and you didn't touch them I suppose there was I suppose the fairy forts as you used to call them yeah. that had kind of a you don't knock a fairy fort or
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, you yeah.
0: know, for bad luck and this kind of thing. You know, there's various myths and stories like that. So yeah. people just didn't touch them and that was the way. You know, and that's why I suppose the monuments are in the condition that they are in because they were, they were minded
1: down through the years by the by the farmers. And that's an important point, isn't it? I mean, the fact that we have such a rich archaeological legacy now is because of the custodianship of the landowners. And the folklore, especially in a place like Rathcron. It has you know it, it is a big part of the story as much as the monuments themselves and is that something that you feel is kind of going from the community these days that kind of not so much the kind of the belief but there's telling the stories about the places and all of that is well i suppose like
0: as with a lot of rural areas like the three schools has closed here in in a very short radius like okay and the local okay. school are closed a good few years ago so i suppose there isn't that next generation i suppose as such you know i don't even live here myself from the farm okay. due to planning issues that is in the area so yeah, yeah. Th- there is that other side of it as well you know so i suppose there is a, i know the, the local schools do bring them here and, and and different tours and that but i suppose the population i suppose it's it's declining everyone's moving away that's it so you kind of lose you do lose that sense of 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 the story to a certain degree do you know that yeah. real local knowledge yeah that comes from yeah. knowing every
1: yeah. tree and, and yeah 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 there's around. a story
0: nearly with every tree and yeah. every mound and you know that's that's it
1: all the folklore like yeah yeah, yeah. And, and on that you know you mentioned the kind of the planning and and there's it's a difficult time for farmers there's a lot of demands on them and and there's kind of a an increased intensification in some ways to kind of keep up and how much does that kind of conflict with the archaeology does the archaeology almost become a hindrance more than an asset in in some ways or is there a way to balance between yeah well that's
0: a good point because i suppose going back years ago there was studies done and obviously there's planning issues and there's a few other people like myself that had planning issues here and the archaeology became a huge negative yeah and there's no point saying it didn't and even people that that would say had houses kind of it all became a negative mm. but I think definitely the the, the farm and DIP project has you couldn't believe the positivity has brought because mm-hmm. now instead of looking at your archaeology as a negative now you're actually getting paid to protect it mm. which mm-hmm. before this there was no payment it, w- it was a hindrance like we can't deep plow you know we can't put forestry here you have them hindrances and you are not actually you are not paid for that hindrance I suppose yeah yeah um so I suppose now the EIP and it was great that we got the funding from the Department of Agriculture
1: it's, it's you know it's brought a lot of positivity back to the area so Jerry, could you tell us a little bit about what the scheme means on kind of a daily basis you know how does it um affect your work what kind of measures do you take as part of the yeah
0: well show? some of the I mean I had uh, uh national monuments in Milan that I didn't actually know I had until the manager came around and, and pointed them out to me so that we've measures in place to protect them with resting frames um and and low input uh intrusion fencing, you know, that doesn't actually impact the ground. Mm, okay. Uh just to protect it and build the grass coverage back up on it again. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe stoning around water troughs. Like I feed a lot of meal, we'll say the back end of the year. So again poaching. So we stone certain areas for feeding them on that you wouldn't be damaging the the, the ground and yeah. just moving cattle around again. Even there this year now like I we've like 90% of the land to be fairly good dry land, but we have a small bit that's wet. So I've had eaten now for the winter the, the wetland because we had a dry spell there now. Yeah. So I won't be poaching that now. For, it's closed up now for the winter. We'll say. Yeah. So, so it's just about management,
1: you know, it's just good management and and uh, stewardship almost. Yeah, right? yeah. And when you say poaching, you are talk about kind of shooting a couple of pheasant. You talk about the damage that correct poaching the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cattle yeah. hooves do. Hooves, yeah, 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 yeah to yeah. the ground. Yeah. Turn it up. <laughs> yeah. So no, that's a really important part because some of these monuments, of course our earthworks, and the more cattle moving across them the more likely they are to be eroded and damaged and so on so you know
0: grass I think the the more grass you can have obviously it protects them do you know yeah yeah. bare ground obviously is is what you don't want like either running into the shed there before the project start and like it was there's no point saying it was it was a mess but through the project and management Mm -hmm. like there's there's a layer of grass on it now and it's perfect it's you know yeah so like as I said it's just about thinking and managing your 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 farm a little bit different yeah. and puts more focus on on the on the archaeology and the landscape yeah by having the scheme because you're focused on if the when the manager comes round you get scored at the end of the year on, on the condition of your land so obviously you want it in the best condition you can have possible to get the best score for the most you know the most money you can get so yeah, yeah. It, it, it just puts you in focus
1: and it works so well for everybody then. yeah you know it works so well as you say for the archaeology and the heritage but also yeah. for yourselves and yeah it, it might you know with the having these kind of uh better surfaces if you like for cattle moving across has it made it a more pleasant sort of farm in a sense yeah in, in yeah like yeah, it,
0: yeah. And, I, and like i mean if if there's no one to blame if your land is poached it's your own fault really at the end of and i know we've had a very good year this year weather will play a part in it yes but again it's going back to the management if you've all your area stoned or you know just moving cattle out of places that you know they can poach Yeah. just moving them around and keeping them moving around you know yeah exactly um so it's it's look it's been hugely positive for the area you know there's no point saying it hasn't
1: that's fantastic and would you recommend a similar kind of scheme uh, for, for farmers such as yourself would you recommend that more people kind of get involved with that sort of
0: yes thing? and I think our scheme even yeah. like with 30 odd farmers in it but I'd say if we had the funding we could easily probably have twice that Wow. Okay. Um, and yeah. it just shows you the appetite that that's for it yeah, yeah. and and hopefully going forward we, we can extend it beyond the EIP yeah and uh, you know it's as I said it's it's created a, a, a positive outlook towards the archaeology that people are getting rewarded for protecting them which all our forefathers did and you know they didn't get anything but it's nice to see now that there's a structure there in place and and a procedures
1: and all that for for doing them correctly do you know absolutely i mean i think it's a fantastic model and you'd love to see it in other parts of the country and and, and so on so well no, that's fantastic and in terms of like the future for yourself and, and the farm and you know the, the the kind of the project is that what you'd like to see that there's Increased value putting it and grow the scheme, or how do you see the
0: yeah? Well, I think it? you made a point earlier there about intense like farming has become a numbers game, really. Because yeah. definitely, with the, with the suckler end of it, the margins are so sort of tight, it's a numbers game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, in one way, less stock the kind of stock that I have, uh, like you'd be looking at 800, 850 kilos live, so they're quite heavy. Mm. So, poaching, obviously, so it's just I think going forward, like the is more about a management you know managing your farm in such a way that you're not doing any damage to the land or the landscapes and yeah. I think going forward I, I think you know I, I think the area has improved definitely the land and people's land has improved mm-hmm. and I think like I mean the, the, the schemes that's been there before there's been very little in it for archaeology yeah it's been forgot about and I think that from what I can gather this new scheme I don't think is much different mm-hmm. so I think as you say hopefully what we're doing here can be rolled out the country like uh, eventually do you know that you'd like to think
1: that that's that's it and I, and I think you know even from a kind of consumer point of view you know people are interested in the story of where the products come from and where the beef and such comes from and there's a hell of a brand there for for cattle and <laughs> rathcron you know yeah, that, yeah. that could, could could become something special that you'd like to see a premium put on Cattle raised in these Yeah,
0: yeah. Well there, yeah, there yeah. is other places that have that kind of yeah, I suppose and as you said, there yeah. is a market there. Yeah, for sure. For crown B for sheep or whatever it may be, do you know? But that's it. You're eating
1: from the same plate as Queen Mae, if you yes, know how bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's brilliant, Jerry. Thanks very much for okay, that. that thanks that's yourself. great, Jared. Thank you. Well that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. And I'd just like to thank Daniel, Petra and Jared for their insights into this fantastic project. You can learn more about Farming Rathcrochan on their website at farmingrathcrochan.ie. And you can also discover more about Rathcrohan itself and its incredible archaeological and mythological landscapes by visiting rathcrochan.ie. And that's where you can book tours and events like the upcoming Samhain celebrations. Now that does book out very, very quickly, so don't hang around if you'd like to take part. You can also support Rathcrofton Visitor Centre by checking out their online bookshop and for archaeology aficionados there's a whole world of temptation waiting for you right there. You can find links to all of this and our show notes on our episode page at the website abataheritage.ie in the Amplify Archaeology section. I'd also be really grateful if you'd subscribe and leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform. It both helps me to know what you enjoyed, and it also helps the likes of Apple Podcasts or Spotify know that we're worth featuring. So do help us out and take a moment to give us a hand. Uh, It'd be much appreciated. And finally, if you'd like to discover more about Ireland's incredible archeology span and landscapes, consider joining TUA. It's our new membership service for people who want to dig deeper into the stories of Ireland. You can discover more at tua.ie, that's T-U-A, t-h-a dot but for now thank you and take care goodbye